Today we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 28, verses 25 through 27. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, otherwise they will, might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. The word of the Lord. Morning, church. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. I did not know that Rob was so funny. I'm not sure he's as funny outside the building, but he's certainly as funny inside the building. <laughs> So we're going to talk about zeal plus knowledge today, and as we begin, I want to say a prayer from my heart as it pertains to this holiday weekend and holiday weekends in general and church attendance. May those that are not here experience all the rest, reconnection, and refuge they are seeking right now in their own strength. And may those that are here receive from you double what those playing hooky might get on their own. Amen. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Let's, let's dive into this. Uh, these last chapters of Acts, there's a dramatic shift, and it's all about the Apostle Paul. He has been set loose. He has a lot of education, a lot of what's called zeal for God that's been redirected uh, to, uh, ha to be a zeal for Christ. He was a scholar among scholars, and because of his background, uh, partly because of his background, I think God chose him to reason with people. He worked to persuade people by appealing to their reason. And if you read the book of Acts, if you read any of his letters, you understand that Paul was a man who operated within a uh, highly intellectual framework. He wasn't just telling people, he was always showing people. And there's a world of difference between telling and showing. Showing is presenting the reason, the evidence, and giving people space so that they can come to the conclusions on their own, at their own pace. But he wasn't weak about it. He wasn't necessarily indirect about it. But there is a way that he was confident and spacious because he was able to convey to people that this is true and you can experience the truthfulness of the truth for yourself. This was his strategy. Jesus was similar. Um, on the road to Emmaus, the scripture says that Jesus opened up the scriptures and showed the disciples how the Messiah, and here's a key word, had to die. It became plain to the disciples as Jesus showed to them that reasonably speaking, given what was laid out, given the evidence, Jesus had to die. And there was a conclusion that Jesus and the disciples can come to together. It was plain to them. It was shown to them. Romans chapter 10 verse 2 says that some people have a zeal for God but without knowledge. And I wonder about that and Christians today. 
whether we have a zeal for God, but we are ill-equipped and misinformed and less than adequately educated, connected, aware of the whole body of information that's available to us so that our zeal can be with knowledge. Philippians chapter 2 says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. To work it out. To really think about it. Care about it. Be invested in it. Be deliberative about it. Invest time in it. 2 Timothy says be ready in season and out of season with answers, with explanations. If it's just your will, your opinion at play. There's no room for anybody else to explore it. It's just you. But if you say, here's how, and here's why, and here's the math, here's how I think about it, here's the evidence, people say, oh, that's interesting. Let me look at that. I think how to be in this world in a competent and credible, God-glorifying way is the modern-day mission for Christians in America today. If you do the research and you study the trajectory of the church, where it's been and why, the cultural forces at work, the chemical reaction that is American Christianity, you begin to understand that one of the most powerful ways that you get to be light and salt is to become a competent and credible, God-glorifying Christian. And I wonder how you're doing in that area. Knowledge alone, I think, is interesting, but it's ultimately unfruitful. Remember the story uh, of money that's just been locked up in a storehouse. It's totally worthless. Who cares if you have all of this knowledge, but you have no engine to deliver it? Zeal alone is admirable. I think I meet people with zeal. But I also experience them as dangerous because they are without knowledge. They're sort of like a runaway train. There's a lot of power there, but it's dangerous, and I want to get out of its way. Jesus talked about this. He says, they know not what they do. Zeal without knowledge caused people to crucify Christ. They could not understand. They did not understand. They didn't know what they were doing. And I wonder how Christians are today. And I think actually the worst offender of all is when there is impure zeal, meaning that you believe you're zealous for one reason, but really you're zealous for another reason. And on top of that, you have partial knowledge. There's nothing more powerful than a lie that's based on partial truth. It's so hard to shake. It's so hard to combat because it rings true on some level. And then people use that partial knowledge to destroy rather than to nurture. The devil, I think, is such a person, masquerades as an angel of light whose aim is to destroy and to kill. But zeal with knowledge, zeal is power in the sails, steadied and directed by the keel and the rudder of knowledge, captain, directed by the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of person I want to be. And I would admit to you first and foremost that I want to be like this. I want to be somebody who's credible and competent. I want people to see my Christian faith as an asset rather than a liability. I want to move to application points here. The first point I would like to make 
is to let your light shine. Because I think there's a world of difference between letting your light shine and shining your light. You ever get pulled over by a police officer at night? Those blue lights in your eyes and then the, and then the flashlight right in your face? That's how a lot of people experience Christians. It's obnoxious. And people turn away. They squint their eyes. They get nervous. I know that whenever people ask, so what do you do for a living? People get nervous. I see it happening all the time. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And then here's the qualifier, yet with gentleness and reverence. That's the letting your light shine rather than shining your light. One of the things that you come to uh, see in these chapters, if you read them for yourself, is that Paul confronted a lot of enemies of the state. You know, his state, people who opposed the Jews, and also Jews who opposed the Romans. And at every turn, when he was up against an authority figure that held his life in their hands, every single one of them, in the end, ends up liking him. There is something really attractive, magnetic, about the authenticity, the competence, and the credibility, and the conviction with which Paul presented his convictions about Christ. It made sense to them. And so one of them even says, if you don't stop, I'm going to be converted myself. Please stop talking. I don't want to become a Christian today. Has anyone ever had that experience with you? Where they asked you to stop talking? Yes, many times. But because they were afraid of being converted. That was Paul's story. Second application point. Be aware of feelings. Be aware that feelings determine your thinking. 2 Timothy chapter 4 says this, For the time will come when they'll, they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers, listen, in accordance to their own desires. This is the human plight. We have a lot of cognitive biases, biases going on in our heads. We have things like the confirmation bias. We tend to cherry-pick the evidence that supports what we already believe, and we fail to even see the other pieces of evidence. A great example of this is Christians who say God answers all their prayers. We've figured out how to sort of falsely lift God up to help our narrative along. And a lot of Christians hear Christians talk the prayer talk, and they're turned off by it. An example, psychological biases like rationalization, where if we have an agenda, if we have a lifestyle, there's a way we want to live, then we employ our thinking to rationalize and justify that way of living and doing. And we are blind to it. It's a powerful force at work. We don't just get competent in our thinking, but we have to get competent in our emotional Awareness. Feelings are not bad. Something can only be learned through your own pain. So, for example, God instructed Hosea to marry a prostitute so that he could understand God's heart. But that's part of Hosea's learning and growing experience. It's not just, 
intellectual, but it's experiential. But nevertheless, he is learning. Application number three. And this is kind of new terminology for us, but it's one that you're going to hear uh, from me and others a lot. I believe one of the primary ways that God's calling our church to be at this time in our culture today is to not hold positions, but to learn how to hold space. To hold space rather than hold court. Your job is not to lead with your opinions, but to lead with your love. More important than your position is your posture. God's calling you to hold space. If you read the story of Paul, at every turn you see how Paul held space. He created space that's big enough broad enough and deep enough for all different kinds of people to interact with him, to argue with him back and forth, to study scripture together, to look at the prophecies of the Old Testament and to compare it to all the things that have recently happened concerning Christ. He created and held a reasoning space. He wasn't threatened by the idea of holding space. He knew who he was. He knew where he ended and where other people began. He wasn't threatened by who they were, where they were at, what they were thinking. He was confident in his own beliefs. And yet he was able to open up that confidence to others and use that confidence not to win the argument and to beat, beat it over their heads, but to hold a space. To look at evidence together and say, so now what do you think about Christ? Oh, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. I wonder if it's possible for us as a church to really embrace the idea of having a growth or learning mindset as opposed to one that's closed, as opposed to one that already knows everything. I want to give you an example that's very near to me right now. Uh, uh, some of you may know that I do a bit of work for our denomination as well, and this issue is uh, looming very large. Uh, in our denomination, and I want to bring it up as an example today. Just a little bit of warning. This could be experienced as a bit in your face, and it's definitely potentially controversial, uh, but I want to invite you to stay with me and journey together as a church and also as a denomination into this issue. I would like to talk about uh, the issue of human sexuality, specifically homosexuality. I've been having to interact with new pastors coming in to our denomination, as if you are old-time covenanters, uh, that's our denomination, you know that we have a covenant position on what's called human sexuality. And if you want, you can go to our website and read the whole paper and the rationale for that thinking. But here is what's interesting to me, and here's what I want to confront you about. I have come to believe that there is rampant, and inexcusable inconsistency and thoughtlessness in the church regarding this issue of homosexuality. I spent two weeks ago in preparation for this sermon about 20 hours researching this topic afresh, looking through books and articles and scientific articles about the brain and hormone levels and epigenetics and all sorts of stuff related to uh, human sexuality, particularly homosexuality. And... Uh, I came across this uh, little gem of an interview with my favorite uh, 
Presbyterian pastor and church planner, Tim Keller, they asked him about his position on homosexuality. And Tim avoided the question, uh, and he said, you know, I just want to point out that Jesus himself talked about greed ten times more than sexuality. And yet the church never, ever talks about greed. They never bring up greed as a disqualifying factor when it comes to church membership or church leadership, but they love to bring up homosexuality. And my question I want to throw back at you is, why? I would, I would add that greed, the word that Jesus uses, the word that's in the Bible, modern-day translation of that is the word consumeristic or consumerism. It's precisely what we are all uh, defined by. It is one of the engines of our country, and of our culture, and I'm sure of our personal lives. And yet, when you wanted to become a member, become a church, nobody ever asked you about your spending habits. Anybody get asked for their budget? I'm not saying you have to have a position one way or the other, but I think it is really important for you to mentally acknowledge the rampant and thoughtlessness, the inconsistency in the church about this issue. Jesus taught explicitly about divorce. We never talked about it. Never talked about it. Jesus talked about homosexuality exactly zero times. There are six key passages in the Bible that everybody uses and talks about when it comes to thinking about homosexuality from a biblical standpoint. Jesus is not the author of any of them. Now, I'm not saying you have to have a position. But what do you think about that fact? How do you reconcile that? People outside the church want to know. People who've been shunned by the church need to know. With recklessness and thoughtlessness, I believe the church has ignored divorce, for example, while remaining triggered and threatened about homosexuality. Last example, the church is full of drunkenness. The Bible talks a lot about drunkenness, intoxication, drinking too much alcohol, and yet we never talk about it. It's live and let live. It's the unofficial, official policy of this church. What do you think about that? What do you make of it? It's a little bit in your face, I know, but you were warned. So this is a silent survey, just in your heads. How many of you in this room today have ever thought about or held positions on the issue of homosexuality as it relates to the church? Yes or no in your heads? Okay, second question. How many of you who said yes have ever read a single book, done any deliberate research, interviewed people from across the aisle, or even prayed and wrestled with God about it. Now, my experience, because I'm so sort of dealing with this on a regular basis, I ask these questions all the time. It's like one out of 100 people. I think just 1% of the people who claim to have positions have actually informed themselves on why they hold those positions. For most people, the gut reaction and hearsay seems to be sufficient. They do more research 
for a dumb product on Amazon than they do on this very powerful, life-touching issue. What is your position? More importantly, why? I read a research paper this week. It talks about something called CRED, C-R-E-D-S, Credibility Enhancing Display. It says, in particular, have been shown as rather important for the acquisition of all aspects of religious culture. And in the sermon notes, there's a link to the research paper itself. You can read it. But basically what it says is the more inconsistency children see in their religious parents, the earlier they become atheists. That's the conclusion. What it does show also is that the most impactful factor is not the culture, but it's the credibility, the inconsistency they observe in their religious parents. I'm saying blame the culture because they do deserve some blame, but also, but also, read the paper. Speak for yourself. Read, read the stats. You can't turn away from it. The covenant, in their effort to uh, bridge gaps, to relearn, repair, and restore, um, they created a program called Embrace. And that's available on our covenant uh, denominations website as well. You can click on that, and you can interact with the people and the videos and the teachers from different sides they brought in to help all of us sort of uh, start having conversations about this. So that's an effort by our denominations. I want to ask you one more time to hold very loosely your position. Hold very tightly to the idea of holding space. Commit yourself to being a learner, to being illuminated, and to keep learning, learning even if you think you've arrived. Just a couple of ways that our church is providing opportunities to do that, as has been mentioned this week, small groups. It's simply a structure that allows for the holding of a learning, connecting, and communicating space. That's what small groups are. It's held space. It's a safe and holy space. Just a little, thing, a little tidbit about the life cycle of small groups. Research shows that it takes about three small group meetings for people to get comfortable. The fourth meeting is usually experienced as the best meeting, and then by meeting number eight, people begin to feel like they don't want anybody new coming in. And so when you join a small group, you got to give it a shot. you got to go past four weeks. you got to get yourself to eight weeks. And if that doesn't work, you should just finish it out because we just have three weeks left. And if it wasn't that great, you get another shot at another round of small group. But I think you should keep it up and take advantage of this structure. Second thing is the Gottman Seminar. It's going to be a helpful space where you get to really think, contemplate your marriage without the pressures of having to maintain the mask. You get to privately unmask, open yourself up, and take in the information and say, what does this mean for me? I want to conclude uh, with these words and with this prayer. 
I read this quote this week, and I love it. It is easier to put on slippers than to carpet the world. A lot of Christians out there want to change the world. They want to carpet the world. But I'm telling you, start with your own slippers. Nourish yourself. Fill your mind. Be renewed in mind and heart. And lead with your authentic questions. Put on your slippers. Let's pray this together as we close. For this reason, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and keep him and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Amen.